0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, ex-cop, ex-CIA, explosive. It's Ed Davis, how the devil are you sir?
1: I'm good, thank you. I'm you're right I am terrible at these tagline games. The, the I've just got it in my head because I watched the trailer for Triple X Xander Cage the other day. That mm. it's going to be the Triple X but I don't think that's Xander Cage's backstory. Is it is it Triple X 2 State mm. of the
0: Union? No, it's not. Oh. Um, although, you know, having the 3 X's in the tagline would have been perfect for that film. No, this is uh, from uh, a film that you, you were never going to get this one. This was a really tough one. I just thought it was a cool B movie tagline. Uh, this is from a Burt Reynolds uh, <laughs> film from the <laughs> late '80s called Malone. Wow, which, which sounds like something that Troy McClure might have been in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and yeah, these literally the the entire premises of the. Of the of the of the film, he is ex cop who is also ex CIA.
1: Yeah, I mean it's, it does what it says on the tin. It's a real Ron Steele tagline, isn't it?
0: Mm, absolutely. We are at the end of the year, everybody. We've ground our way through 2016.
1: We made it, everyone. We, well, hang well, not on. everyone. <laughs> not
0: everyone made it. There's quite a lot of people uh, who perished along the way, but, but we didn't. And we're here to kind of uh, wrap it up for you uh, in our annual. Uh, year in review show we're going to talk about 2016 we're going to talk about what was good what was bad what happened uh, what didn't make the grade uh, what disappointed us and also run down uh, our annual list of the top 10 films of the year first of many arbitrary lists you'll be reading uh, or listening to this week because it's this it's, it's the season you know
1: yeah we're going to put a bow on it and then bury it in a hole 100 feet in the ground and never talk about this year again
0: yeah, hopefully I can I can just tip up at the end of 2017, having seen f- six films all year, um, and uh, just be like, "Cool, man, that was yeah." Why didn't I take 2016 off? That would have been so much better because you know, <laughs> it was a fucking drag. The Place to start with to wrap this year up is actually a little bit of kind of current affairs news. they well, not current affairs like you know, freaking Syria or some shit, but like the Golden Globe nominations were out, which is a reflection of the year gone by. And they were full of surprises, weren't they, Ed?
1: Yeah, they're probably the most pleasant surprise for me, just because it's a movie that I loved, and a movie that I thought, and even said on this very program, that I thought would get absolutely no attention whatsoever was *The Edge of Seventeen, which got a nomination for best actress in a musical or comedy for Haley Steinfeld. Mm-hmm. And I think that augurs absolutely nothing for her hopes in the Oscars because um, it's a, it's a, it's a teen comedy drama that's not something the academy are interested in but I just love the fact that she was is briefly if only briefly in the awards conversation because I thought that was absolutely phenomenal performance from her and I'm just really really glad that someone other than me has been paying attention.
0: Mm, And I was being slightly sarcastic about them being uh, uh, full of surprises because this year they are grimly predictable.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like the Moonlight, uh, which is a, an amazing movie. I'm glad it's been recognised. La La Land, which I haven't seen, Manchester by the Sea. I mean, these are movies that everyone expected would get nominated. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, that this is the, the thing that always happens with awards season, which is that right before all of the awards bodies, all the critics' organisations, or even when the critics' organisations are doing it, there seems to be this uh, wealth of possibility. Because um, there are so many movies, so many... Possible ways that the award season can go. So many films that could be in contention and in the conversation. And then as soon as the Golden Globes come out, it's like, oh yeah, these are like the, the five or six movies that people are going to pay attention to. And, and they're good movies. You know, I've no problem with them. I am bemused by Deadpool getting a Best Comedy nomination. Not because uh, I have anything particular against the movie. Just the sense that uh, it's not a movie I thought anyone would... Pay attention to outside of the fact it was a big success. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, that one was uh, was a little bit of a surprise, as to be said.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll get to Deadpool because we're going to probably talk about it um, a fair bit in this episode because it it did play quite a part in making 2016 2016. I guess. What are the overarching themes of 2016 in film? One of the main ones which we have continually touched on this year, on and off, uh, is the fact that um, 2016 um, was a massive plate of dick on toast for many of the big studios and some of their more um, dependable releases, I guess, which ended up being, you know, somewhat short of the mark in terms of box office receipts.
1: Probably the biggest one... I mean, it's hard to say, really, because there are some movies which you just look at and you think. I mean, we do this; we try and do this in the preview every year, every year, is to try and pick out the films that we think are just going to absolutely faceplant right out the gate. Mm. Uh, and, and the one, one of the ones this year that I kind of looked at, I thought I don't really think there's an audience for this was Independence Day Resurgence, mm. which was you know a revival of a hugely successful movie that came out twenty years ago seem to be following the same path as Jurassic World did the year before, which is, again, bringing back some uh, cast members from the original. Although, I mean, arguably, Jeff Goldblum was a bigger part of Independence Day than B.D. Wong was a part of Jurassic Park. But, you know, the idea still kind of stands of, of this connectivity when you're essentially just rebooting a series with new technology. But, yeah, even then, I think there was no interest in seeing an Independence Day that took place twenty years after people had lost interest, after that movie had already augered in so much disaster porn that the USP of watching famous monuments get destroyed had been completely uh ground down and all interest lost. And without Will Smith, who at the time the first one came out, was at the peak of his powers, you know, as a as a charismatic performer. Mm. So that one Definitely didn't seem like a success from the off, but even then, it was uh, it was impressive how badly it, it did.
0: Mm. And you know, it was not alone, was it? Independence Day, um, in terms of uh, being a kind of a high profile, big budget failure. You know, there were quite a few of them. Some of them perhaps struggled to find an audience in a crowded marketplace. Some of them were perhaps the audience wasn't quite there in the first place I'm thinking something like Warcraft which uh did pretty well overseas you know fell kind of on its ass in the US.
1: Or The Huntsman Winter's War mm. a sequel to or prequel to a movie that did okay a few years ago but which no one was wild about mm. uh like aesthetically it was a very interesting movie and it did interesting things with the Snow White myth more so than Mirror Mirror which came out the same year and bafflingly got better reviews Mm. even though it was way worse uh, and a terrible terrible movie that the world has moved on from thankfully Mm. um but like yeah that one came out and did nothing like that this year I think has been typified by me forgetting whole movies came out because they would have a couple of trailers it would be like intimated that it was going to be a big deal for the weekend and then absolutely nothing would happen. Similarly, there was a third Da Vinci Code movie out this year. Inferno came out with Tom Hanks' big role reuniting with Ron Howard, made th- more only about $30 million in the US. Like, is staggering how badly that film did.
0: Hmm, yeah. Jason Bourne, uh, the Jason Bourne franchise attempted a... Uh, a kind of soft reboot that didn't really work out did it mm, although that one's that one
1: is one of those areas where yeah, you look at it and think probably didn't do as well as anyone in the studio hoped so isn't perhaps uh the return to uh prominence that they were that that it was billed as but yeah definitely not not a runaway success
0: mm, and uh you know one of the biggest disasters of the year is a film that you know we've talked about a bit, the film that made nearly $900 million at the box office, uh, Batman v Superman, colon, uh, Dawn of Justice, um, which uh, did make a, a astonishing amount of money, but probably still ended up costing the studio a pretty penny.
1: Yeah, an example of just how insane the blockbuster model is now, that a movie earning less than a billion dollars can be considered a failure. Mm. Uh and to be fair, it failed on its own merits. <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> it, it, it failed. failed through not being good.
0: Yeah, not being from not being a very good film, even just a collection of of words <laughs> and images, <laughs> it failed to even pass muster as a as a piece of entertainment. It was terrible, um, but still not the worst film of the year. Why don't we have a rundown of the the highest grossing films of two thousand and sixteen, Ed? What are the top ten?
1: Okay, or we'll we're top 10 and we'll go by worldwide because we are a global podcast mm, nominally absolutely. we yeah. have We have listeners in at least two countries. Mm-hmm. and uh, we'll start out at number 10 with uh, and bear in mind we're recording this just as Rogue One has come out. I'm sure by the time that uh, people hear this, Rogue One will have shot up this list considerably, but at the time we're recording, it is not in the uh, top 10 just yet it's at number 26. So please bear that in mind. But it's, currently, it, and it's ten... been out,
0: it's been out three days, and <laughs> it's a number yeah. twenty six. So I'm sure it will crack the ten by the end of the year. Yeah. So uh,
1: currently, the film that is going to be displaced yeah. in a matter of days is Doctor Strange with six hundred and fifty two point nine million.
0: Mm, I mean, and that was a film that we at the start of the year said that if Guardians of the Galaxy cool they they that was a weird um film for them to make but they got they did a great job with it marvel um made it appealing made it different to the other marvel films um and they got away with it doctor strange we said is similar is is another kind of risk a bit weird he's a lesser known character but it's they they've kind of weaved their magic on it again
1: yeah and it also seems to be following the pattern of all of their first generation films where it does okay not spectacularly but it establishes the character and, and much the same as like Thor or the first Captain America or Ant-Man. It introduces the character, kind of establishes their place in the broader Marvel franchise and sets up the possibility for, for more success further down the line. The difference is that the benchmark for success keeps getting moved because obviously the Marvel films keep getting bigger. So while 180 million was good enough for for the Captain America and Thor uh, and 150000000 million wasn't really good enough for Ant-Man, although that's still getting a sequel just because Paul Rudd's really appealing. And I think people just want to see, put him in more movies. Mm. Uh, you know, Doctor Strange is currently at $220 million in the US and rising, and obviously overseas is doing really well as well. So mm. uh, it's, it's kind of another example of how well uh, Marvel and Disney have built that as a, uh, Marvel as a whole, as a global brand that can attract people to even the most uh, Potentially uh, iffy propositions. To date, mm. I'm sure they're going to chew. There's going to be some project in the future that is going to flop horribly. But so far, their winning streak minus a Hulk movie here and there
0: has been pretty much unbroken. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, novel number nine? Uh, another big franchise movie. A lot
1: of these are going to be big franchise movies. It has to be said. Uh, with uh, I think only really only really two or uh, three exceptions. So there's a few a few. Original-ish ideas in this uh, number nine, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them.
0: Yeah, that's uh, done well. That's not been out that long. Um, uh, yeah, seven hundred and seventeen point five million. And that's going to spawn a sequels, I guess. Yeah, up to
1: five. I believe they are. They are all in on extending the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and uh, I believe, yeah, that they've got five planned all of which will be directed by david yates who after dallying uh, after dalliance with tarzan is back in the world of magic
0: mm, yeah i mean he's, he's just found his niche now hasn't he? he's just happy doing that but yeah i didn't see it i don't give a shit about harry potter come fuck off
1: i do give a shit about harry potter and i didn't see it <laughs> right. just there's my love of harry potter and my complete ambivalence verging on disdain for eddie redmayne Eddie Redmayne they, and Johnny
0: Depp in the same film is not going uh, to drag you out to the theatre.
1: Yeah, it is very much like uh, what happens when an unstoppable force and an immobile object, an immovable object collide, and it is that I don't go and see a movie, apparently. Mm. Number eight, a movie that I think we'll be talking about in a little bit, is Suicide Squad, which earned 745.6 million.
0: Which is 745.6 million more than it deserved, because that is a piece of shit.
1: Yeah, I think we should. Uh, there's got to be some way that we can take uh, Warner Brothers to court and just mm. try and get that money out of them because that was a uh, that was a poor bill of goods. That was like ordering a bookcase and being given a shovel. You know, mm. it was not what anyone wanted.
0: Yeah, and the shovel is covered in shit. Um, and <laughs> a used um... shovel—that's the worst. The worst uh, business idea I've ever heard. Hmm. delivered by Captain Boomerang. <laughs> I don't want that. Well they, there's probably like uh, kind of someone in Suicide Squad called like the Shoveler or something who's just really good at digging. <laughs> anyway, we in fact we've got a tr- I think we've got a trot of terrible superhero movies in a row here. So Suicide Squad was 8, number 7 I think would be Deadpool, is that right? That
1: is correct. And um, 782.6 million.
0: Oh, now you know i don't want to keep going on about how at the start of the year i said that would be the biggest flop ever and it turned out to not only be the seventh highest grossing film uh, of the year but also the highest grossing r-rated film of all time and you know i'm i'm just not convinced this actually happened i think this is a weird like kind of fever <laughs> dream that i had um because I, I saw that film and uh yeah that was not a good movie
1: yeah i mean i've still not seen it because even though i think i can probably watch it on hbo go at this point even though it's it's readily available to me i just can't stomach it i can't uh, get up the enthusiasm for it and and the reason why i think is there was a, there was a great tweet from david ehrlich who uh is like a, a, a terrific writer who always does these end of year montages which are my favorite thing about the end of year list making thing is when he does his his montage of the best movies of the year um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this if people haven't seen it, because his latest one is terrific. And I'm not just saying that because I donated money to help it get made. Although, mm. you know, that doesn't that doesn't help hurt. Um, but he said about Deadpool when it came out, uh, all the criticisms that Deadpool makes of comic book movies are the ones that I got death threats for making.
0: <laughs> right. Uh,
1: and that is like, it is taking things that people have said about comic book movies for years and years and years. And this is me just kind of like saying, based on the trailer and the kind of the attitude of it, kind of mocking the conceits and the cliches and the tropes of it, and which comic book fans get up in arms about for people kind of writing negative reviews about how cliched and, um, uh, 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 and programmatic and all of these things, how these are always basically telling more or less the same story. And they always get like flack from fanboys. And then suddenly a film does it and like does it in a kind of a snarky, Um, uh, a snarky voice and suddenly everyone's like, yay, best film ever! Oh, they're right, all these movies are kind of shit in a kind of a way or they all follow the same plots uh, and there's something a a bit galling about that.
0: Mm, Yeah, I mean we'll get to Deadpool later in the show so let's just move on to number six which isn't going to get any better for our uh, superhero trio.
1: No, um, although I guess it's a superhero quattro because there's two superheroes in it. Well, more than that, a slew of superheroes, most of which uh, no one cares about, mm. called and it's called Batman v Superman: colon, Dawn of Justice, which earned eight hundred and seventy three point three
0: million. Hmm, that's an obscene amount of money. Uh, let's move on and not talk about it.
1: Yeah, let's uh, let's leave that unpleasantness uh, in Gotham City mm. or what's left of it. Yeah. Uh, wait, which which one did they wreck? did they wreck up Metropolis this time? I forget. I think
0: it was Metropolis. Yeah.
1: It was some anonymous. City, it was some area of warehouses where no one could get hurt this time
0: It was uh, <laughs> uh Number
1: five The Secret Life of Pets an original movie uh, in the sense that it's not based on anything, not in the sense that it's actually, uh, I mean it's based on every animated movie ever
0: I think but, it was based on Toy uh, Story from the trailer that I saw
1: Yeah, a little bit of Toy Story in it, it has to be said there's a kind of shades of Pixar to it mm. uh, but not necessarily in the heart and the humour That earned 875.1 million, which, Mm. I mean, on the one hand, yay for originality, uh, but also uh, boo for unoriginality, unoriginal thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about a pet who's the owner's favourite, and then they bring in a new pet, which uh, he gets very jealous of. And then uh, he attacks him, and then they go on an adventure because they get lost in a city, um, which sounds quite familiar to another like, film that I've seen once. Citizen Kane? That I think is called Toy Story. Oh. Yeah, Citizen Kane. Yeah, I know. I didn't see that, but I, is that the Illumination Studios who did, like, uh, Minions? Is that right?
1: The, yes, it's uh, from the, the studio that brought you the Despicable Me franchise. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. The third of which is coming out and has Trey Parker as one of the voices, which is one of the weirdest bits of casting I've heard in a while. Like, it's not weird that Trey Parker would do a voice. Hmm. it's weird that Trey Parker would do a voice in a project that wasn't originated by him and that wouldn't allow opportunities for scatological humour. Well, actually, no. <laughs> it wouldn't allow for extreme scatological humour.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we will... When it actually comes out, it won't be him. He would have been cut out by that point um, and been replaced by someone uh, less egregious. Uh, Ty like Burrell. Ty Burrell. Yeah, yeah, I think he's a cuddly family favourite. The top four of our list of highest-grossing films of 2016 all belong to the same studio, don't they? Ed?
1: Yeah, Disney, who have had a quite frankly astonishing year. Last year, Universal had broke the record for the the studio that earned the most money in a given year worldwide and domestically. And Disney saw that and said, "Right, we're having that. We're taking mm-hmm. that record." And they have taken it. They've knocked it into a cocked hat with uh, their four currently four. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say. By the time that uh, by the time that uh, Jules Holland's Hootenanny airs on New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, uh, it'll be the top five movies of the year. Will all be Disney movies? Uh, starting, but currently there's four of them. Starting with The Jungle Book, which earned nine hundred and sixty-six point six
0: million. Mm, that's a lot of money. Yeah, that's a good movie, but like, yeah, that's a is. lot. That is a lot.
1: Yeah, it's it's just so weird because I know that John Favreau's. Iron Man movies came out before the international box office had become quite the uh, bonanza that it is. So obviously his movies didn't have the chance to earn quite that much. But it's still amazing to think that the Jungle Book of all the movies that he... Of those two movies that he directed, all the three or four movies he's directed for Disney, was the one that ended up getting close to a billion worldwide. It's, it's really quite crazy. Mm, number three? Zootopia. Yay which, um, for original ideas. Genuinely original this time and uh surprisingly thoughtful. Uh yeah. this that one earned one point zero two three point eight billion dollars. Mmm.
0: Big money. It's you know, it's no surprise these days to see the, the top few films uh cross the billion mark. I think we had four or five of them, did we last year? Uh yeah, if it wasn't last year, it was a few years ago that we had one year that was just it was just nuts. Bonanza. Um, number two, um, Finding Dory. I kind of had to, this thing um, this year, uh, like earlier today. I was like, did Pixar a film out this year? And I was like, oh, yeah, they did.
1: Yeah, I had that. I had more or less the same thought. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess they did have a movie out. And then thinking, oh, yeah, it's like one of the highest-grossing movies of the year. Mm. But it seems to have come and gone. Uh, for the record, that one earned $1.027.4 billion. And... It's perhaps unsurprising because obviously finding Nemo is a much beloved classic. It's not one of my favorite uh Pixar movies, but it's one that a lot of people really love and uh the it was a it was a decent movie. It was not spectacular, but as far as uh, continuations of a story that didn't really need continuing go, there. that one was, was pretty solid. And number 1, with a bullet unsurprisingly, it's a Marvel movie and it is Captain America: Civil War, which earned one point one five three point three
0: billion dollars wow, wow, that is not cheap, uh, and you can kind of see the argument for just stuffing as many superheroes into one film as possible. And it seems to be yeah. uh how to top the box office, and it seems to uh work it for Marvel, where we would kind of before the Avengers came up, we would think, oh God, there's too many too many kind of superheroes going on here um it's not really going to work there's going to be not enough room for the characters to breathe but captain america civil war has literally i think i think i counted uh 462 superheroes in <laughs> and that's that's yeah. that's insane
1: uh and even though i don't think it juggled them particularly well or at least uh, it made all but two of them intensely grim and unappealing with the exception of the two bug-related characters, who were actually genuinely fun and charismatic on screen, uh, oh, and, and you know, Black Panther had reason to be serious because his dad had just been killed, and he was great. But you know, it, it had some fun stuff in it, but was otherwise, yeah, not not the movie that I was hoping for. After being really impressed with the Winter Soldier, mm. it kind of felt like it had the pro- same problem that the Avengers movies have, which is they just get increasingly busy.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that was the highest-grossing films of 2016, um, and for a change, I've seen most of those. Uh, some of them, wish I hadn't seen, but you know, here we are. One of the overarching themes of well of uh, 2016 is just how many people died, uh, mm. and uh, kind of big famous people died, um, and people that were kind of icons and uh, you know, you know, genuine. Um, originals um, and yeah, they just don't stop because even whilst we've been recording this podcast, Jar uh, Jar Gabor has died, age ninety nine. Um, so two thousand sixteen just won't stop uh, this kind of relentless combine harvester of death uh, churning its way through celebrities left, right, and centre.
1: Yeah, and obviously there were there were big ones. Obviously, we started the year with David Bowie. I mean, I'm sure someone died before David Bowie, in, in in uh, January, it wasn't like we had twenty uh, something days when no one died, mm-hmm. and then Bowie just kind of broke the seal on the year. But you know, Bowie—he was a big one. Uh, Alan Rickman, who died a few a few days later. Prince—you uh, know—was it was a huge one. Uh, Fidel Castro, obviously, much missed. Um, but, you know, there was a uh, just this slew. Gary Shandling—I'd forgotten Gary Shandling died, mm. uh, which uh, was was really sad because obviously he was he was hugely talented, but. Of all of the many people who died this year, I think the one that still makes me... Kill, still really hurts, uh, which is weird because I didn't have a, as intense an attachment to his work as a lot of other people who died this year, like like Victoria Wood um, or um, Carolina Hearn, yeah, whose, whose work was kind of very formative for me. The one that really seems to hurt the most is Anton Yelchin, mm. which was the most senseless and shocking... A bizarre way for someone to die at such a ridiculously young age, and it remind today. I was thinking, it reminds me a little bit of Harris Whittle's dying, where it's someone who is only really coming into the full extent of their powers. You know, they're someone who they've demonstrated talent, they are building a career. You're you're watching them, and you have that assumption: oh, I'm going to I'm going to be following this person on their journey. For like 40 or 50 years, you know, I'm going to, they're going to do so much more work. And then suddenly one day you just see like a tweet or a, or a news alert. It's like, oh yeah, this journey ended a lot sooner than I think anyone intended or expected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have to say watching Green Room recently had a, an extra uh, kind of edge to it after that. Um, But yeah, it was uh, a rough year. I mean, obviously the world uh, was kind of terrible. Um and you know hopefully we'll be here in 2017 and I won't be in some kind of internment camp, um so yeah um we kind of really have to hope for uh better things to come out of 2017. What else was uh, kind of an overarching news story of the year? Ed, what what kind of uh, defined 2016 other than awfulness of people dying and the box office being you know a kind of a, a disaster zone.
1: I think for me, and and we'll probably touch on this a little bit when we get into our best of the year, was uh, how staggeringly strong a year it was for documentaries. Mm. There were a couple of really high-profile ones, which uh, we'll talk about, but there were also just a lot of movies that were exceptionally... Not only were they telling interesting stories in a really compelling way, but there were ones that pushed the form in a way that uh, was genuinely innovative, something like Kate Plays Christine, where you watch uh, essentially a mockumentary about the making of a fake movie, which deals with very real themes about the culture of people gawping over terrible celebrity stories or terrible deaths or, or horrible things happening, and then wanting to see it recreated for some sort of catharsis, which doesn't really exist. You have things like Women He's Undressed, which is a great movie by Gillian Armstrong about... Uh, uh, about oh ah, fuck what's his name <laughs> shit I can I can never remember the guy's name. Um, Ori Kelly. Okay. Um, he had a uh, woman. He's undressed by Gillian Armstrong about the uh, the costume designer designer Ori Kelly, which was a, a wonderfully offbeat, uh, very stylized and uh, uh, theatrical and very Australian movie about uh, kind of classic Hollywood Tower, which was a movie about. The uh, the kind of the Texas, the University of Texas shooting in the 1960s, which was told using rotoscope, a technique which could have been kind of chintzy or even outright offensive, but turned out to be deeply moving. Uh, and there was just there were just a load of just fantastic documentaries that came out this year. And as it's been a, a fertile form for, for forever, you know, so there's obviously always great documentaries and that's why we enjoy going to DocFest every so often, you know, because you get to see a bunch of them and really appreciate the breadth of the form and how much great work people can do, but uh, this year it just felt like we were drowning in them.
0: Mm, absolutely, it's been a banning year for documentaries, yeah, that could well be reflected uh, in our best of uh, best of the year list. Uh, we'll have to hang on and see if that's the case. Let's get into the ugly business um, of the worst films of the year, Ed. Um, and by God, there was a lot of them.
1: For me, the, there were a couple of, of solid contenders. There was X-Men Apocalypse, which uh, what took all the goodwill that I had from Days of Future Past I'm pissed it all away on an uncharismatic performance by Oscar Isaac, a thing which I did not think could happen, mm-hmm. uh, a slew of bad CGI nonsense, wasting a really talented cast, including like newcomers who uh, I was hoping for really good things from, like Cody Schmidt mcphee uh, And I think it can be summarised by the fact that the best scene in it is an almost complete carbon copy of the best scene from Days of Future Past, but with a different song playing on Quicksilver's uh 8-track pf- uh, tape player Cafe Society was bad uh, latest Woody Allen movie it was just a dreary unfocused felt like he'd just taken a sh- like seven of those ideas that he keeps in his drawer and just throwing them in any order Denial, a movie about uh, kind of Holocaust denial that could not be more relevant which was just awful Batman vs Superman we talked about a little bit which was pff, pff, there's no, there's no words for it, there's just noises
0: pff, yeah yeah.
1: But for me, far and away, worst film of the year. So bad we devoted two whole fucking episodes to it. <laughs> Suicide Squad.
0: Yeah, and we won't lurk and linger on Suicide Squad because we um did talk about it for uh two episodes, like you said, and uh it was kind of so earth shatteringly poor that we not only decided to talk about how poor it was, but also decided to devote an episode to Uh, what it meant in a wider sense it was it was it was it's uh aftershocks were felt throughout modern culture uh, and we had to figure out a way to um to kind of explain that to you to you all so i think we should probably just use this this opportunity to describe suicide squad in one word and the word that i would use is absolutely fucking dog shit
1: (laughs) yeah i don't think you can add any more to that um just you know that no spaces yeah Get it in Merriam-Webster for next year.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would like to give. While Suicide Squad is the the runaway leader for the worst film of the year, uh, for reasons um, you know, kind of uh, too many to go into briefly. Um, I want to give two special mentions to the uh, Netflix originals, uh, The Fundamentals of Caring, uh, the uh, kind of twee indie comedy with uh, Craig Roberts and Paul Rudd. And Special Correspondence, the grating comedy with uh, Ricky Gervais and Eric Banner, um, which are both absolutely appalling. Um, The latter of those films, Special Correspondence, runs Suicide Squad pretty close. Um, It is absolutely dreadful. Um, The uh, kind of limpest, lamest, flattest comedy, uh, in inverted commas, uh, that you will ever see and yeah with with two uh, you yeah, know a, a script that was clearly written in a week and you know made with a cast that seems to have been good and somehow assembled behind this shitty idea appalling absolutely appalling and yeah two two uh, big stinkers for Netflix original films
1: yeah i mean when did it all go wrong for Ricky Gervais when did he become the neto adam sandler
0: i think it's when just all americans kept telling him he was a genius I think that yeah. was part of the problem, to paraphrase Stuart Lee. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the problem is you've got someone who made the Office um, and is integral to the Office, and there's not really any way around it. To kind of talk about the Office, it, it is actually a masterpiece, and it you know it's so influential and so perfect in a way. Um, but yeah, everything else he's done since then um, has been you know kind of. Th- I ranged from kind of mediocre to thoroughly unpleasant.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. His career is actually almost the inverse of Adam Sandler's, but they both ended up at the same place, which is making terrible movies on Netflix that (laughs) no one pays any attention to other than the like opening salvo of like incredibly hilarious and entertaining bad reviews. Mm. Which is that Adam Sandler never really good. Like you couldn't point to his you couldn't point to maybe his early stand-up or his, his stuff on SNL. You could say, okay, that was that was entertaining and that people have a certain nostalgia for him. But he wasn't like a critical darling at any point. He didn't make anything where you could point to and say, that's an una- that's an unabashed masterpiece. Yeah. But he was such a commercial force that you couldn't argue with the fact that he, he'd made all these films and got paid huge amounts of money because they made huge amounts of money. And, you know, at a certain point, the money dried up and he had to go to Netflix. And... Like Ricky Gervais is like you point to his stuff. You know, started out Office hugely acclaimed, Extras was was reasonably acclaimed, and then in his case, it was he was never a commercial force for, in any respect. You know, every time he tried to headline a movie, no one no one showed up. But you know, for him, at some point, the critical acclaim dried up, and he makes Derek, you know, and stuff for Netflix. And I just find it very interesting that they both ended up at exactly the same point, but at least one of them made studios hundreds of millions of dollars along the way.
0: Mm, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, those are the worst films. Um, before we get into talking about our favourite films of the year and the best films of the year, should we give a bit of a shout-out to the films that were kind of disappointments, the ones that the ones that let us down?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the one that uh, springs to mind straight away because it's one that I keep forgetting I've seen. It was so... Forgettable, and it shouldn't have been. Was Billy Lynn's long halftime walk? Um, I'm a big fan of Ang Lee. Uh, I know you are as well. We did a whole episode about his mm. his work. And even though uh, he has made films that haven't resonated in the past, you know they've at least had moments that are interesting. And although there is one sequence in Billy Lin's long halftime walk that is is great, which is the halftime show itself, in which uh, its themes about the way in which. War and the experiences of soldiers are commodified and ter- and, and resold to the public and, and all of the actual horror of war is drained out in celebrations of empty patriotism. Is all explored in a way t- uh, that is really fascinating and visceral and soundtracked by a couple of really good Destiny's Child songs, which is all, all good for me. That's stuff that's uh, completely within my wheelhouse. The rest of it was just so dreary and drab and a waste of really talented actors, didn't do anything. Uh, and I was I wanted it to be because because when I saw it it had already flopped mm-hmm. it had already been written off and was exiting theaters at the, at, as fast as you could carry it but I was I was hoping it was going to be uh, an underrated or a, a misunderstood masterpiece and it's just mis- it's just a misfire in mm-hmm. every way
0: for me my biggest disappointment of the year was Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some uh, exclamation mark! Um, exclamation mark! Two exclamation marks! They're for emphasis, I guess. But yeah, it was uh, you know build uh, Richard Linklater, you know one of you know our favorite directors, um, a, a spiritual sequel to Days Confused, Confused, um, college kind of fraternity uh, hijinks, and you know guys playing baseball. Those things, you know, that's all stuff that I enjoy, um, and to, you know it's in my wheelhouse to use a baseball term. And, uh, yeah, it's not very good because uh unlike Dazed and Confused, everyone in it is deeply unlikable um mm. on the basis of the being like massive pricks um there's kind of like uh weird porkys vibe to it, which I'm not sure is intentional, but it kind of comes across um, and I don't know whether I just didn't get it or whether you know Link later was just off the mark with a bit. Um and yeah, you know, perhaps didn't quite nail the tone the way he wanted to. Um, there, are, there are some good moments in it. There are some uh, kind of really fun bits in it. Um, but yeah, ultimately a a disappointment that I didn't expect. Uh, I didn't hate it, um, but I didn't much care for it either.
1: Yeah, I'm going to see if I can see if any of that really stand out. As I was quite disappointed by Lo and Behold, which was uh, the one of two Werner Herzog documentaries that came out this year. This one about the internet, mm-hmm. just because, as even though it is very Herzogian in that it is him kind of exploring the meaning of the internet, the origins of it, and then its effect on society. And he does ask an intensely uh, Herzog-esque question, the sort of question that you could imagine Paul F. Tompkins as Werner Herzog asking, which was does the internet dream of itself, which is, uh, you know, kind of wonderfully weird uh, approach to the subject matter. It doesn't really coalesce, coalesce into anything interesting, despite some kind of striking some striking moments.
0: Hmm, yeah. So those guys could have done better. What other films have we got that nearly made our top 10, but didn't quite? And uh, for, again for uh the sake of clarity we go with uh films that have got UK release date just because i think that's where most of our listeners reside so what kind of didn't quite make the cut for us
1: uh a film that i really loved but which uh didn't make uh didn't make the cut this time was love and friendship wit stillman's adaptation of a uh, of a jane austen novel a fairly obscure one which was just a hugely enjoyable watch a brilliant central performance by kate beckinsale uh, which is not a sentence you get to say very often mm-hmm. um she's a she's an actress who uh has followed a career into action cinema, which I'm sure has brought her a very nice house but which doesn't really push her kind of dramatically and in that she is uh just fantastic a wonderful uh winning uh presence um lemonade by beyonce, which you know i mean you can argue about whether or not it's just a collection of music videos but it's a collection of music videos with a distinct theme and a narrative all independent by her specific vision and in kind of uh, illustrating the themes of that album which is a great album in and of itself so I think that one was hugely uh, impactful and one that I really loved. Uh, The Fits, which is an incredibly strange dance movie essentially but about a young girl who joins a dance troupe and then members of that dance troupe start suffering from seizures and it uh, you know it's not a movie that explains a huge amount but it is one that has a terrific and huge emotional impact uh, I was really really impressed with Queen of Catway the Mira Nair film uh, with Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo which was could have been kind of very boilerplate aspirational sports story could have been just pure poverty porn, but is so deftly handled by Mira Nair and the actors and is the absolute best version of those kind of stories about plucky young underdogs who, who win big in a sport or a, an activity, in this case chess. And uh, it's, uh, for me, one of the saddest movies of, of 2016 because it's a crowd pleaser uh, in the best possible sense which did not find its crowd, uh, and that's a movie that I think a lot more people should see.
0: Hmm, yeah. Um, I have to say that quite a lot of those films didn't make the cut because um, I've had a terrible year and didn't really see any of them. Uh, so uh, a lot of them probably would have made it uh, last year, but, you know, I've been planning a trip. I've been very busy, and uh, I've been really down on films this year. I kind of, I'm not one of those uh, kind of obsessive uh f- competitive film watchers, we've talked about this before, but a programme like Letterboxd, or a website like Letterboxd, does help you track how many films you've watched, and I keep an online diary. I have done since 2009, Um, and I know this year I've only seen like a 100 films, which is like maybe not even half as many as I normally would watch, Um, which I'm kind of like super, super behind. Uh, I've had a terrible year, Ed, I'm sorry.
1: That's fine, I mean, you've been planning to travel the world for 10 months, so... I think you're you're allowed to have let the the film-watching slide, but Mm. by God, if you haven't seen 300 films by the time
0: you get back, there will be words. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, don't hold out for that, Ed. Um, (laughs) But I'll definitely make sure... They have
1: cinemas in Bolivia.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do. Imagine if all of them are showing Suicide Squad. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that would be absolutely awful, and it would ruin my trip. Um, So, okay, without... Uh, any further delay let's get into the uh top 10 of the year let's go what have we chosen for our number 10 number 10 is a movie that i hugely
1: enjoyed and uh, i didn't have huge expectation i didn't have many expectations for but which ended up being great uh was the invitation i'm so glad you're here we've got a lot to talk about so much to celebrate tonight each and every one of us is on a journey and we feel that it's important to be on that journey with the people you love.
0: So, The Invitation, what was that about, Ed? The
1: Invitation is a movie by Karen Kusama who uh, previously directed, I believe, the movie *Girl Fight* with Michelle Rodriguez. That was kind of her big kind of debut performance and then uh, kind of screwed her career with Aeon Flux. Mm. which, you know, she took and wasn't very successful and that kind of derailed her for a while. And this was something of a comeback. It's a very small budget, very focused movie about a group of people who go to a dinner party and they think... And there's some tension because uh, one of the people who's invited used to be married to to the hostess and she's now got in a new relationship and she seems very happy in this new relationship, but there's still underlying tension between the two of them and... As the night goes on, things start to get very odd. There's uh, people who should have shown at the party but didn't, and there's questions about whether or not those people have been trying to get into the house or if they've been called or not. And it takes a very simple premise. It takes something that uh, requires nothing more than a good script and actors and beautiful cinematography and transforms it into this incredibly unnerving and disquieting movie about human relationships and the messy fallout of of breakups basically and uh, it's a hugely impressive film it reminded me a lot of a movie from three or four years ago called Coherence which did a similar thing with an even smaller budget and uh, it's, it's basically it's proved to me that I really
0: like movies about dinner parties that go awry hmm who is in that film Ed anyone anyone famous there is one person who I
1: think is famous to uh to you and I which is John Carroll Lynch right yep sure so I mean that that is someone who is not famous at all (laughs) who but who is a great character actor and that is basically the level of of performance in it people who have been in a lot of different things oh um Michael uh, Husman, who is uh, most famous for being uh, Dario on uh, Game of Thrones,
0: Dario number two.
1: Yes, Dario number two, uh, like Becky one and Becky two in Roseanne. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so he's in it. So there's lots of people who are kind of familiar faces, maybe haven't headlined a movie before, uh, but who are like hugely talented. And so you, they're people who are who are in most things dependable, but because now the focus is on them, are allowed to do. More interesting work. Mm, which is always good. What's our number nine film, Ed? In a very different direction, both in terms of tone, plot, <laughs> budget. Uh, and uh, commercial success, because we've already mentioned it, as one of the most successful films of the year, was Disney's Zootopia slash Zootropolis.
0: We've made you a little
1: care package to
0: take with you. Mm-hmm. And I put some snacks in there. This is
1: Fox Deterrent.
0: Yeah, that's safe to have that. This is Fox Repellent. Okay, the deterrent and the repellent. That's all she needs. Check this out. Oh, for goodness sake. She has no need for a Fox Taser, Stu. Oh, come on. When is there not a need for a Fox Taser? Yeah, we. I mean, we talked about this earlier in the year. We were both very uh, taken by this film. And I kind of didn't really know too much about it. I'd seen the trailers, and I was like, okay, yeah, it's a you know a city full of animals or whatever. But then I remember some, seeing someone pitch it on Twitter as it's uh, Black Lives Matter, the movie with animals, and I was like, well, that's actually a pretty kind of decent and succinct way of summing that film up.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the uh, the racial undertones of the movie are surprisingly well handled. I think the idea of society being composed of people who have uh, long-standing reasons for distrust between them, how difficult it is to form a kind of a civil society around that and the difficulty of that uh, and trying to have sympathy towards pretty much all sides except, of course, the inevitable villain. And uh, I was was surprised by how well it handled that, but I, I kind of feel that's because it's not necessarily trying to directly draw out parallels between real life events it's more it's more general about you know different groups of people having to work together despite uh implicit bias that may exist between them
0: mm, yeah and it's a pretty emotional disney movie as well isn't it i think the the moment where the lead character the rabbit realizes that she has uh, essentially uh, become everything that she is working against um, when she kind of betrays Jason Bateman's Fox character. Um, that's like a kind of a real kind of gut punch moment, that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of complexity to it that you wouldn't expect from a Disney movie, especially the, the central premise is very complex and the world of Zootropolis is, is beautifully realised and all of the different bergs that are designed to kind of allow different uh, different kinds of creatures to coexist in, in their natural habitat is uh, beautifully realized i particularly like the town for all of the small animals which uh, turns Judy hops into a kind of uh, godzilla like <laughs> creature as she's running around them uh, and it's just a, a you know it's it's complex and it's uh, in its setup up and in how it handles its action sequences are all kind of very intricate but uh, the emotional and uh, social and political complexity of it was something i was uh, was definitely not prepared for
0: mm. yes me neither plus also a couple of surprises most notably jenny slate in a disney film mm. um, yeah, yeah always nice to have and uh, a plot that's uh kind of like a bit dense and kind of 70s and conspiracy like a bit like kind of chinatown or parallax view or something like that
1: yeah there was definitely a, a, a great feel of chinatown to it and like if you're going to crib from someone, you should probably crib from the best.
0: Mm, yeah, so a kid's movie uh, using animals to tell a parable about racism plus retread the storyline of Chinatown. Um, I mean, Rango did it a few years ago. That retread the <laughs> uh, the story of uh, Rango, uh, of, uh, Chinatown, but not really with the same... Um, kind of social commentary um but yeah zoo I think Zootopia is obviously the better title for it we've been through yeah. this before um so we'll go with that but you know that's uh, a pretty kind of pretty kind of good film from Disney and I think that um not really something that's going to be sequelized is it I don't I, well how I don't know how they manage that
1: I guess it's a world that's big enough that you could try and retell stories in it but yeah I think it they would be they would be Silly to do so from a story perspective, but stupid not to from a money perspective. So I think it probably will happen. Um, you know, if, if Frozen's getting a sequel, then Zootopia's probably going to get one at some point.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. What do we have at number eight, Ed? A very different movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is the. Technically,
1: first movie from The Lonely Island, pop star, colon, never stop, never stopping.
0: Listen to this, homies. We can upload your entire album to fridges, washer dryers, blenders, and microwaves across the country. You can do that? Yes, nerd. It's just Wi-Fi jibber-jabber. It's not a big deal. This is that next, 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 man. I told y'all, Deborah's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And it is also pronounced Deborah. Deborah. Oh, that's very cool. What's the origin of that? Uh, I believe Deborah.
1: And I say technically first because although they did the movie Hot Rod many years ago, that was from a pre-existing script that they were then given and kind of worked on separately. This is Whole Cloth, a movie from The Lonely Island.
0: Mm. This is by far the daftest movie (laughs) on the list but it might be the most fun. It is for me
1: uh, certainly. I've rewatched it a bunch of times. You know, I went to see it in the cinema. I was one of the the, the happy few who went to see it in the cinema before it completely sank from view, uh, I mean, which was a fantastic. One of the most fun experiences I've had in a cinema this year, and I've watched it a bunch on on Blu Ray since. And it is a very silly movie about a Justin Bieber slash Justin Timberlake esque pop superstar who's being filmed for a documentary about his life and around the release of his second album uh thriller also is that way is that way second no uh something it's some pun on connor isn't it yeah his his first album was called F- thriller also uh and then he has his second album uh which uh is a massive disaster and causes his life to spiral out of control Uh, And it's a wonderful vehicle for Andy Samberg as Connor for real. It's got uh, great supporting casts from uh, supporting performances from people like Tim Meadows kind of uh, making this, to my view, something of a spiritual sequel to Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story where he also has a memorable supporting role. And, uh, you know, it's got a bunch of famous people showing up as talking heads in in interviews uh, saying, things about how amazing and transcendent connor for real is even though he's obviously terrible uh which is which is fun um particularly i think it's one i think it's maybe nas or one of the wu-tang clan has the line that made me laugh the most which was when he says uh i haven't cried like that since josh charles got killed on the good wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is such a such a wonderful reference to kind of drop in uh, the songs are fantastic you know the Lonely Islands have always been great at pop pastiches and this one has some really great ones including a song called Turn Up the Beef which they sing with Emma Stone which is just a nonsense collection of of, of catchphrases including Patrick Stewart money which is my favourite phrase of 2016 and 2017 I'm going to give it next year's as well and uh, the song uh, uh, Equal Rights which is an incredible biting parody of Macklemore's Same Love, which I didn't realise the world needed. It just kind of excoriates the attempt to make a song that is both saying, hey... Equal marriage is great, and uh, you know there should be equality for gays, but also constantly just saying no homo, essentially, <laughs> uh, at the same time, which is just was brilliant. Uh, it's got a load of fantastic jokes, completely aside to it, including a wedding proposal with wolves, which goes wildly wrong <laughs> in the best possible way. Mm. Uh, and it's uh, also there's kind of a, a kind of a meta-textual subtext in it, in that Connor is the most successful one of a trio of uh, kind of members of a boy band and you know there's kind of a sense that there it's maybe sort of paralleling paralleling Andy Sandberg's own career and his relationship to the other Lonely Island guys and ultimately reasserting that friendship's what's mattered. It's just kind of it's surprisingly lovely and heartfelt for a movie that also has uh Andy Sandberg at one point standing on stage naked with his dick tucked between his legs.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then having to spend Several days afterwards, trying to spin the media into feel like to kind of prove that he does actually have a penis. <laughs> yeah, and the aforementioned wedding proposal, which ends with the recording artist Seal uh, fighting wolves, actual wolves, <laughs> um, and prefacing that with the line, Don't worry, I've done this before, <laughs> which <laughs> could be an entire movie on its own.
1: Yeah, that's why I would hope. If if the movie had made $100 million instead of like nine. <laughs> that I would hope that'd be the sequel. Just Seal on his own, and also it's fun seeing like past collaborators like Timberlake's in it as an enthusiastic sous chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Bolton shows up to memorable effect. Uh, you know, always, always welcome to see him putting his pompous pipes to good use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, uh, it's just a delightfully strange little
0: movie that I'm super glad exists. Mm. And you are kind of in a weird separate bit. Michael Bolton's now got a comedy special on Netflix.
1: Yeah, he's got one coming out uh, ahead of Valentine's Day, co-directed by one of the Lonely Island guys. I want to say by Jorma or or Akiva and uh, Scott Ackerman. Right. So Wow. So um, and apparently it's going to be a mix of genuine love songs and weird comedy bits. So uh, I'm curious to see how how Netflix uh, expands its comedy brand, considering they've been investing a lot in comedy over the last couple of years.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. The next film on our list, Ed. Number seven on our list is Shane Black's The Nice Guys. You're a private investigator? <clears throat> Look, there's 20 bucks in there, all right? Just take it. No, oh, I'm not here for that, I told you. You and all hired me. Yeah, if we can do this the easy way, we can do it the hard way. Glenn. What? Lily Glenn, two ends. Old lady hired me to find her niece on Tuesday. You just gave up your plan. I made a discretionary revelation. No, no, you just gave her up. I asked you one simple question, but, 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 but you gave me all the information. I thought that's what you wanted. Seems apt coming into Christmas, uh, or as people will mm. listen to this, after Christmas. The Shane Black film is in there, a film that I didn't think would have any kind of Christmas connection until right at the end when, yep, sure as shit, he kind of crowbars it in there. But yeah, Shane Black has gone through somewhat of a career renaissance, hasn't he, in the last 10 years. Probably starting with uh, what's it called? Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, uh, and this is very much in a similar vein.
1: Yeah, it's not quite as self-referential as Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in the sense that uh, the narrator doesn't stop the film to tell actors to move out of the way so that uh, he can get a better shot at his younger self in a in a flashback. But yeah, it has to say it's a very you know uh, rapid fire dialogue. There's a kind of a convol- convoluted plot unfolding you know lots of misunderstandings lots of low lives kind of being thrown into conflict with even lower lives uh you know kind of heroes who are a little bit dirty in their own way but you know kind of come through just about in the end uh and uh, particularly in this one an improvement on the other one a uh, really great comedic action because in the in-between times he directed an iron man movie so he's someone who has got, I think, a little bit more of a spring in his step and a little more confidence in his uh, his vision and his realisation of his work.
0: Mm, yeah, and features uh, kind of a pretty decent uh, comedic turn from Ryan Gosling, who yes. is matched equally by Russell Crowe. Uh, it's nice to see those two flexing uh, the comedy chops.
1: Both of whom uh, are funny in ways I wasn't expecting, like I wasn't expecting... Ryan Gosling to be such an adept physical comedian, uh, the scene of him trying to close the door to a bathroom <laughs> stall whilst also smoking a cigarette and holding a gun and kicking it and dropping the cigarette uh, is kind of an expertly timed bit of comedy that's that's really really great and also uh, Russell Crowe being a little bit restrained, you know, he's been he's very much in his uh, I think it was Mark Kermode who said years ago that there are two modes to Russell Crowe There's kind of the serious actor Russell Crowe, where he does the work, and then there's the blockbuster Russell Crowe, and you can tell which is which by whether or not he's been working out. Mm. And this one, he's you know he's very much in his slubby, uh, serious actor doing the work bit, but playing with, in a lighter register, where kind of a more uh, light-hearted vein, and it works really, really well. Even though his job in the movie is to brutalise Ryan Gosling in a really horrible way, well at least uh, initially.
0: Mm, yeah, it's the the one detail you missed from that bit of comedy uh, business with Ryan Gosling is that he was also trying to keep his trousers up or trying to pull yes, his trousers yeah. up uh, in the toilet store, which made for, <laughs> made for an absolutely hilarious uh, scene. But yeah, it's, it's essentially Russell Crowe's performance is a kind of a comedic flip side of Bud White, isn't he, from LA Confidential?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a big feel to it. I mean, the whole thing has an L.A. confidential vibe. Uh, different era, obviously, set in the 70s rather than the 50s. But it has that feel of L.A. as a, a cesspool of people constantly running uh, dirty tricks. This one kind of goes to uh, bigger places in terms of its study of corruption and kind of Bigger consequences from it, but it is kind of in that same vein. Uh, also, in terms of the physical comedy of the movie, I think uh, a moment that speaks to Shane Black maturing as a filmmaker and perhaps learning how to use the camera more uh, effectively. Uh, there's a sequence where Crow and Gosling go to a hotel to uh, meet someone, and uh, they get to the top floor and they realize that a bunch of people have all been slaughtered, mm-hmm. so they look out the door then quickly hit the button to escape from what looks like a terrible wreck and as the lift is going down uh, a body flies out alongside it and uh, it's just a wonderfully timed bit of of physical comedy and a great use of uh, you know just camera placement to sell a joke which uh, is something that he does a little bit in kiss kiss bang bang but I felt was more pronounced in this one
0: Mm. I want to give a shout out to uh, the young actress. Uh, I can't. I'm, I apologise to her if I mispronounce her name, but uh, Anjuri Rice, um, mm. who uh, plays Ryan Gosling's daughter, a uh, long-suffering daughter. Um, she is a really gifted uh, uh, actor, and I thought she was really great in that. Which is nice to see a uh, performance from uh, a kid. Which doesn't mean you want to cut yourself.
1: Yeah, she was. She was fantastic. I think it says a lot about her that she was able to hold her own against two, you know, experienced and very kind of gifted actors that she pretty much runs away with every scene that she's in. And she also gets to handle uh, some serious stuff when, towards the end of the film, her life is imperiled by uh, a, an assassin, which, uh, you know, well, I think a lesser actor could have bungled. Maybe they could have done the comedy but not the serious, or they could have done the serious and not done the comedy, but she was uh, brilliant at both.
0: Mm, yeah. Absolutely. What else have we got uh, next on the list?
1: Number six on our top ten is a very different movie: <laughs> Green Room.
0: Those of you attending the racial advocacy workshop on Wednesday, assume it's on unless you hear otherwise. And remember, this is a movement, not a party. Dave, Dave, got me. Hmm. This film is fucking brutal.
1: Yeah, uh is the second no third film from Jeremy Solnier who previously directed Blue Ruin, the very violent low budget uh revenge movie from a couple of years ago, which I this, think we
0: we had as number 2 on our list that year, I think.
1: We did. Yeah, it was it was one that made a huge impression on us. Uh this one has a slightly bigger budget in that it has actors you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and Macon Blair showing up in this one as well, uh, being as a, in a kind of a small role. Uh, he was the lead in Blue Ruin and he was great in that. But uh, this one is a very tense and very bloody thriller about a punk band who are kind of stranded. They've run out of money. They're stuck trying to siphon gas to go from gigs to gigs. Uh, and they get a job uh, that will pay them very well or enough to get them to Portland where they next want to go Uh, but it's playing for a group of neo-Nazis and uh, that in and of itself not the the most auspicious start for a clearly very left-leaning punk band but when they uh, go into the uh, uh, titular green room they stumble across a murder and suddenly they are trapped in a room of in a building with some very hostile people who are going to try and cover up the fact that someone's been killed and the only way to cover that up is to kill a few more people, and uh, the film ratchets up the tension from an already very tense
0: place. Hmm. And like in Blue Ruin, um, the violence and uh, brutality of it is so effective because it comes in, you know, kind of it comes at you from unexpected angles, and mm. it kind of takes you off guard. And yeah, it does not uh, follow that kind of principle that you have in your film in your kind of film brain when you're watching a film and you're thinking oh this person's like an actor with a name I've heard of so they're not gonna die Um mm. you kind of genuinely do not know what's gonna happen from minute to minute
1: yeah and even during the moments when you think okay there's like this is clearly setting up a set piece so maybe someone will die by the end of it. And it's like, nope, someone has died straight away. Mm. And what looked like would be a very kind of uh, meticulously planned set piece has descended into absolute chaos almost instantly. Uh, but other times, you know, the set piece is allowed to spread out. There's a particularly memorable one involving uh, a, a two men, a gun and a basement, which uh, kind of does, a, does great things, kind of sp- spreading out this one fight between these two characters uh, to points where it's almost unbearable Uh, and the uh, the film is just kind of beautifully paced in basically how it accordions between scenes of complete chaos and scenes of uh, of uh, of eerie and uh, unsustainable quiet intention Uh, and it's got a great cast Anton Yelchin who we obviously mentioned earlier is 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 fantastic in it uh, Alia Sharkat, who is most still probably most famous for playing Maybe on Arrested Development, but is uh, is is growing into it has becoming a a wonderful actress. Kind of in her subsequent work, she's really great in the TBS sitcom Search Party, which uh, I would recommend to people. It's a very interesting kind of comedy mystery that uh, aired a few weeks ago. You've got uh, Imogen Poots, the probably the best named actress working today. She's really good. Patrick Stewart is a, a an intimidating villain, make on Blair. Uh, and also, for maybe the most distracting bit of casting that doesn't ruin the film ever, Eric Edelston is one of the Nazis. And Eric Edelston, for people who don't know, uh, is someone who regularly shows up on Drunk History telling stories. So it was very weird seeing him get royally fucked up in this movie.
0: Right, we're getting to the business end now. Uh, what's number five? I think we're going to go back to right back to the start of the year, aren't we, for this one?
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about one of those weird movies that comes out in twenty. Came out in twenty fifteen. Over here, so it was on like my top ten list last year, and I had pretty much I'd forgotten to even think of it in consideration for this until you reminded me of it. Uh, but came out in two thousand and sixteen in the UK. It is Charlie Kaufman's Anoma Lisa.
0: I, th- I think I've got the wrong. Who's there, Em? It's Mr. Stone, Michael Stone. Really? Oh my god! Oh my god! Hello. Oh, do I look awful? I was just taking my makeup off. Oh my god! Ugh! Oh, don't don't look at me. Hello. No, you look lovely. I can't believe you're in our room. We came here from Akron just to hear you speak.
1: Oh my god, please don't look at me.
0: Well I'm certainly very flattered. Yeah, I think this I think I I saw this on like Valentine's Day, I think. Uh Oof. which is I mean I mean, you know, this is I've I've I found this to be a wonderful date movie. Um mm-hmm. you know, to watch stop motion puppets awkwardly going down on each other um in you know whilst they face a kind of existential dread um mm-hmm. but yeah like you know there's no, there was no other film like anomaly sir, released this year i'm pretty sure
1: uh yeah pretty much i think it's i think it has a distinction of being it's very much its own thing uh like you say it's a stop motion movie from uh, it's from Charlie Kaufman the man behind Eternal on of the Spotless Mind, Being John Malkovich, Synecdoche, New York. Uh, it's his second directorial fil- uh, uh, effort after Synecdoche. Uh, and uh, it's a movie that had been mooted for a very long time. I think this was uh, funded at least in part by Kickstarter because he had wanted to try and get it made for a really long time. And for some reason, studios just weren't biting at the idea of him making a, 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 stop-motion, story about, a stop-motion movie about a very sad lecturer staying in a hotel in the Midwest. But uh, it happened, and it was also, I believe, made by Starburns Industries, the uh, company run by Dino Stamatopoulos. So it's an interesting collaboration of people. Um, but it's a, a really moving, sad, strange, funny story about a man voiced by David Thewlis, uh, who goes to this conference. And the conceit of the movie is that every other character in the movie is voiced by... Tom Noonan, the uh, great character actor. Every character in the movie, man, woman, child, they all have Tom Noonan's voice. Uh, except for one character in the movie who is voiced by Jennifer Jason Lee. And because he hears a different voice, he is drawn to her. And so the movie is this, at times very endearing, at other times crushing film about depression and loneliness and isolation and about the fact that this guy over the course of it, of of you know his life has reached a point where he can't really experience anything anymore or he can't really connect to people anymore when he finds someone that he feels like he actually can connect with and the the movie kind of unfolds from there uh, in a ways which are um you know surprising and strange and sad in the way that only charlie kaufman's
0: work is mm, yeah yeah it's stylistically very kind of naturalistic isn't it like the way that the mm-hmm. like if you say it's a stop motion film you expect something to be a bit more fantastical animation wise um this is uh, a kind of drab um midwest hotel business conference with middle-aged spread uh, participants being kind of fairly kind of mundane and ordinary and ugly and it's yeah just not something you would expect uh to see when going to see an animated film at the cinema
1: yeah it's it's a fascinating approach to it and in that respect it's almost the exact in reverse of cenetki new york which was a movie that uh you know had kind of very small budget by by most standards and then just kind of invented a kind of huge fantastical world uh, with those limited resources and then you know this, you know animation, where the possibilities for what you want to realize grow exponentially. Uh, he chooses to make something that, except for a few uh, dream sequences when things get incredibly surreal and very, very kaufman esque, very much reminiscent of his his usual work. Uh, it becomes it, it's mainly just like very, very realistic is the wrong word, but like down to earth basically. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting how. That approach, you know, is kind of a Brechtian distancing device. That you're watching a story that could be told in live action with real people, but instead is being told with puppets. And I think that forces you to engage with the ideas uh, in a in a way that wouldn't you wouldn't if it was live action. And also, the the whole idea of Tom Noonan voicing all the characters is is much more effective when you're looking at animated uh, figures.
0: Hmm. Yeah, we're gonna launch into uh, an unprecedented second stop motion film in our top ten this year Mm. um, in our number four choice
1: Yes, Kubo and the Two Strings
0: It could be a trap Allow me What, it's not a trap if you do it? Stealth is my middle name You don't even have a first name Don't worry, I got this The Mighty Beetle is victorious. This is one of the films that I'm least surprised uh is is right up there because at the start of the year we both um said that pretty much anything re- uh, released by Studio Leica would would uh kind of pique our interest. And boy, they delivered, didn't they with Kubo?
1: They did. Yeah, I mean like the the, the Laika previously had done Paranorman and Coraline and The Box Trolls, all of which are, are really good, really charming films, Paranorman in particular is, is is wonderful. And this looks, obviously, stylistically it's in the same vein because they are the kind of main uh, proprietors of, of mainstream stop-motion animation at this point, you know, it's really them and Ardman. and Aardman aren't quite on the same scale, or they're not as prolific, they're not doing a film every couple of years. And but in a a vastly different um, style and, and kind of a meter, you know, that they're, they're doing this kind of big epic inspired by Japanese mythology, although maybe not necessarily tied into any one specific legend that encompasses a hero's journey, but in a, in a, in a different style about a young boy who has the power to, uh, Kind of alter the world through his musical ability. You know, he can make paper take its shape and be given life, and and he uses it initially to tell stories. But then, as the film progresses, it ends up being central to his own story, which uh, goes on an epic quest into his own family history, basically, and kind of un- uh, uncovering things about about his past in a way that uh, is hugely exciting. The action in it is amazing. There's a couple of really really great fight scenes, which rival or surpass basically anything that Hollywood, live action Hollywood filmmaking is doing but it's also in the end like a lot of, like movies it ends with a climax that is more about emotion than action and more about themes than it is uh, events Uh, and uh, I'm just I was uh, really, even though I've come to expect that that's kind of how they wrap up their movies, I was still impressed by how well they resolved
0: the the story to this one. Mm. And it features some incredibly beautiful and elaborate design work, mm-hmm. uh, which you would come to expect from Leica, Um but also some kind of pretty startling set pieces with the battle on the boat between uh, Kubo and uh, his kind of uh, travelling companions, the, the monkey and the giant beetle, um, mm-hmm. and the two sisters,
1: Yes, who are very terrifying. Uh, they're just these floating, still-faced, magical horrors <laughs> that pursue the characters for much of the movie. Uh, and they are, they are uh, in many ways, reminiscent of, say, Studio Ghibli's work. There's a little bit of no-face about them from Spirited Away, but uh, even more eerie because they're voiced by Rooney Mara in stereo. Mm. So it's like, there's something about it that's especially, especially weird. But um, yeah, I think that it is also in in many ways like their most Ghibli-esque movie uh, in that it is this beautiful fantasy that's also about helping a character deal with some incredibly heavy and complex and uh, mature ideas.
0: Mm. Yeah. I wonder whether it might be kind of too strange for really little kids to get on board with, but I think um, slightly older kids would absolutely love the the world of Kubo and, and the imagery and, um, yeah, just uh, some of the, the kinetic action and, and uh, yeah, the kind of the different take on the hero's quest, which is kind of, you know, revolves around a, an instrument and a spectrum.
1: Yeah, and uh, also it's got some great voice acting, particularly, I was particularly taken with Matthew McConaughey's performance as the Beatle because uh, I thought he was George Clooney's <laughs> in of it. Yeah, uh, he doesn't really sound like himself, but he's very, very funny and charming. And uh, yeah, it's uh, a, a wonderful, wonderful piece of work. Like a uh, uh, haven't set a foot wrong for me so far, and uh, I'm glad that they their mo- either their movies are doing just well enough to keep the studio running, or the fact that they have they are owned by like a billionaire who's just happy to keep making movies. I'm glad that their, their business model allows them to
0: continue making these, these wonderful little gems. Mm, absolutely. What is our third best film of the year, Ed? Uh, a movie that uh,
1: even a week ago I wouldn't have thought would have been in our top ten for reasons that I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, it is Denis Villeneuve's Arrival.
0: Louise. I am Louise.
1: Is that a new symbol? I can't tell.
0: Dr. Banks? <sighs> hey, 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 what are you doing? Yeah, you fine. Insane? They need to see
1: me. Take it off her Dr. Banks? Are oh. okay? You're risking right contamination. They need to see me. Dr. Banks? She's
0: walking towards the screen. Yeah, and not his arrival, should we say. <laughs> um, the arrival of, uh, of aliens uh, to this fair Earth. Um and you are not a fan of uh, Mr. Villeneuve's work. Um, and not at all. I went to see this uh, like last month, and I said to you, Ed, like I know you don't like this guy, but you got to give it a shot. This film's fucking brilliant. And you were like, Yeah, okay, what the fuck? And then you went the other day, and you were an emotional wreck. Admit it.
1: I was, yeah. And it has to be said, of the two female-led sci-fi movies featuring Forrest Whitaker in a supporting role, I saw that day, mm. this one was uh, was altogether better. Yeah, although um, Forest Whitaker's accent work in this movie was interesting. Yeah, you know how some actors struggle to maintain an accent from scene to scene; he seemed to struggle to maintain one from word to word. Mm. Which uh, was was for, I think it's a testament to how great the movie is that uh, that didn't bother me at all after the the star after he first showed up. I was like, okay, yep, yeah, I'm just gonna have to accept that that's what he's doing. Yeah, because uh, I like the rest of this movie too much. But yeah, it's a, a what uh is kind of wankily referred to as a cerebral sci-fi movie but it's it's genuinely true in this case this isn't faux cerebral like a inception or an interstellar not to harp on christopher nolan but come on but yeah it's uh, about uh, aliens show up 12 alien ships show up in different places all over the world they're these kind of um half oval things that kind of hover over the world uh and people don't know what they want so they bring linguists in, one of whom played by Amy Adams who works alongside a theoretical physicist played by Jeremy Renner uh, and they try and figure out how to talk to these aliens even though their language doesn't correlate in any way to ours and uh, so for two-thirds of the movie it's kind of a thinky film about the nature of language and communication and how do you communicate with people who not only don't talk like you but maybe don't even understand the world the same way that you do and then two-thirds of the ways in in, there's a a revelation about things that we have seen up to that point which are already very sad Mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't think you could make those things sadder I didn't think you could make the thing that happens at the very beginning of the movie sadder than it already was and then suddenly a revelation something to do with the way that the the aliens have been interacting with Amy Adams uh, suddenly, makes what was already intensely sad and tragic, like almost unbearably sad, and I found myself just kind of almost openly weeping in the cinema, uh, in a way that I wasn't expecting. <laughs> you know, it really was just kind of like someone had just punched me straight in the gut or whacked me over the head with a two by four. I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for it. I have to say,
0: mm. it's a film about an alien invasion, uh, where the film isn't really about the aliens; it's about us. And mm, yeah. um, the the kind of like the polar opposite of something like Independence Day where I spent the entire film thinking fucking the humans are going to fuck this up. And it mm. has a kind of uh, incredible kind of global tension to it played out in what kind of strikes me in an alarming way as kind of very realistic of like essentially uh, 12 mysterious objects will turn up in, you know, and we won't know what's going on. And someone's going to get panicky and push the button.
1: Yeah, and it, it weirdly, in particular, one plot point involving uh, two characters watching a little bit too much uh, internet news mm. felt uh, felt very resonant for this year. Uh, people acting out of fear and being manipulated by the media. I mean, I, I can't think of any specific thing. That, that might refer to this year, because there's at least five or six different things that kind of fall <laughs> under that category. Um, but, like, for a movie that's based on a short story, that's that's old and obviously was in development for a while, and uh, it was weird how many of the, the, the moments in it felt to really connect to this particular year. But uh, the ending in particular, you know, I mean, the idea of, like, people need to work together and learn to communicate, and, you know, that's the only thing that's going to save us, is uh, something that could be very trite, it could be very easy to say, but... Uh, I like the fact that the movie makes that feel urgent and uh, like something that truly, truly matters. You know, the idea that people can come together in uh, in a time of need and and, and do something incredible. Uh, and uh, it's 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 a, you know it's a great movie. Uh, I can't I can't deny it. Uh, Denny Villeneuve is uh, one for four with me now. <laughs> he managed to do one that that really works, um, and I think it's because the film the story is kind of austere and lean as his style uh mm. i think all of his previous films for me what's not worked is that he's got this kind of very lean style but he's worked with stories that are uh portentous pretentious ponderous you know whatever terms you wanted to use for it it's just something about his style just doesn't work with the stories he's telling in this one uh, there's so there's no fat on the bone there's no there's nothing that can be blown out it's just a very simple elegant story about people about seven tentacled squid beasts about circles and what they mean that um is uh like just huge it's just beautiful it's just a really beautiful movie and i fucking hate that he made a good movie mm. <laughs> but i can't and deny to- it
0: to call back to last week's episodes, uh, I haven't believe, can't believe I haven't made the connection between um, Forrest Whitaker being in this and uh, Saw Guerrero's Truth Squids, um, <laughs> which you know seem to have uh, crossed over. Maybe arrivals part of the Star Wars universe. Who knows? I think that you'll now be first in line for Mr. Villeneuve's Blade Runner um, sequel, um, which I, I believe is, is in the pipeline for next year. Um, I'll be first so, yeah. in line
1: to watch the blooper footage of Harrison Ford punching Ryan Gosling in the face.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, well, you know, you'll have to fight me out of the way first. Ed. <laughs> um, cool, man. Getting down to business. Um, what have we got at number two? We are
1: uh, Well, we're ending the year with two great documentaries, uh, the first of which was the second O.J. Simpson project of the year, uh, and... I mean, it's hard to judge which of the two is better, but I, I, I responded to this one quite a lot. It is Ezra Edelman's OJ Made in America.
0: If you're a black man in America, you're fighting our war.
1: Who's cinema
0: Where you gonna run to? The reality of black America and white America, two totally separate to? world oh, for us oj was colorless. To... this is without doubt the longest film will ever that will ever appear on a short reverse shot top 10 um most I likely say. clocking in at what like four and a half hours was it
1: uh, i get the feeling it's longer than that i think it's like maybe closer to eight
0: eight hours shit man that flew by <laughs> those eight hours Um, And, yeah, I mean, technically it's a film. It got shown in in cinemas, at film festivals and so on and so forth. Um, And like our kind of number one choice, this uh, seems like a film for this particular year.
1: Yes, and uh, it's a movie that is long because it needs to be long because it takes a long view. It's a movie that is about the O.J. Simpson murder, you know, the, the fact he... In all likelihood, killed two people in in 1993, and it is or 1994, sorry, and but it explains um, why that trial was such a sensation, and it's to do with things like the Great Migration that took place in the early part of the 20th century, which saw millions of black people leaving the South because of Jim Crow. Uh, and repression to settle in places all over america including la the response to that of the white people who are already in la the creation of the lapd as and the formation of it uh, and the sh- the shaping of it as a virulently racist institution in many ways and and that creating uh understandably a huge amount of distrust and anger between the police and the communities that they nominally serve and protect but mainly oppress <laughs> um and how that and that anger filters through to the the OJ case, but also about OJ as a, a unique nexus point of um, race and gender and celebrity and the idea of OJ as a uh, sportsman who, unlike Muhammad Ali, who was unashamedly black and never hid it, as a, a man who uh, transcended race in that he basically wanted to be white uh, in the interpretation of him that is offered up by the movie and you know tried to blend into white society and deny everything about the fact that he was black until he was accused of murder and uh, kind of tried to play that up uh, and it's 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 amazing that a documentary nominally about the oj simpson trial is like maybe devotes like two or three episodes to it and the rest of it is about what led to that what happened afterwards uh, and this Stray this very strange pop cultural event and the reverberations of it that have kind of gone out into the world since
0: mm yeah, and it was the second o j Simpson project for the year, the first being the people versus o j simpson the mm. um the t v show that had no right to be anywhere near as good as it as it turned out to be and i seem to remember uh me on recommends one week saying this is a quite a trashy show but i'm enjoying it and then uh eight weeks later saying that is actually emotionally devastating
1: yeah i mean both uh both that and the oj made in america do a great thing of of, of kind of keying into what made the trial so sensational and such a uh captivating thing for for people both then and now which is why there's two projects about it uh two lengthy tv series projects or, or film projects about it but the thing about it is they both end in a point of saying you know this is a story about a very sad and strange figure about a man who uh won uh lost by winning essentially you know he was he won the case he wasn't sent to prison but uh His life was completely destroyed through his own actions, obviously. But uh, yeah, the the interesting, the fall of someone who had been such an iconic uh, American figure for so long to being uh, kind of pilloried for uh, doing a terrible thing. Uh, And it's a uniquely American tragedy in that respect.
0: Hmm. We won't kind of uh, spend too long talking about it because we did dedicate a whole episode to this film um, earlier in the year. Um, and if you want to know more about that, uh, this film in particular, go back and check that out. So we are kind of at the number one film of the year. Ed, you've already said it's a documentary, um, which will make it the second documentary after Searching for Sugar Man a few years ago uh, to top our annual list. What is it?
1: It is Thirteenth, the documentary by Ava DuVernay.
0: The Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution makes it unconstitutional for someone to be held as a slave. There are exceptions, including criminals. The boot hole was immediately exploited. What you got after that was a rapid transition to a mythology of black criminality. So uh undoing some of the ill will towards Netflix that was caused by Ricky Gervais and Paul Rudd <laughs> yeah uh 13th uh was a kind of a blistering uh, uh kind of tearing apart of 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 kind of societal issues caused by the 13th amendment um, which was the abolition of slavery and how really slavery has never gone away because of um kind of the phrasing of the 13th amendment but then it goes much deeper and much wider and ends up being the perfect film to watch given the political climate of this year.
1: Yeah, like you say, the the phrasing of it was that the Thirteenth Amendment abolished slavery, except in the case essentially except in the cases of people being imprisoned. And so what the film argues is that the repressive techniques of slavery were then transferred over time to the lawful uh means in that they're things that are not explicitly banned, but you know, you use the prison system to and to uh, imprison predominantly pe- people of color, particularly men of color, to disenfranchise them of their right to vote, to place them under control, uh, the restriction of voting rights, and it's uh, a for a film that is relatively short. I think it clocks in at under two hours. It is a kind of a blisteringly fast run through the you know the entire racial history of the United States since the. 13th amendment uh, and it does an amazing job of drawing out parallels between the civil rights movement and black lives matter uh, between lynchings and the endless horrifying stream of police involved shootings that have occurred over the, the over the years and it does so in ways which are kind of angry decidedly and unambiguously un, angry about them but also clear-eyed about the struggle that is ahead in order to try and conquer these things the fact that any uh, fight for liberty and freedom is is long and difficult and and fraught with setbacks uh and is a great work of documentary filmmaking it's a great work of social activism uh and it's a great work just a great work of filmmaking in general in terms of the uh, the editing and the uh, way in which it can com- uh on uh, the way in which uh Amy duvernay pushes forward her argument and i think it's it makes for a wonder count- wonderful counterpoint to her film selma from a few years ago which obviously was an account of a real event in the the civil rights movement and and the difficulty of passing legislation and the points at which well-meaning people in government and activists who want to try and push the political process perhaps faster than People in the in politics are comfortable with meat. Uh, it's wonderful that her follow up to that is a movie about how these battles are not restricted. They are not over. They are not restricted to the nineteen sixties. They are happening here and now, and people need to fight for them.
0: What I find interesting about Thirteenth is that it truly establishes Ava Duvernay as a pretty big hitter, actually, mm. um, who occupies a kind of niche space because she is both a person of colour and a woman and operating at the top of her game. And is unusual because she is constantly in the news being talked about as someone who is being offered things or is circling things or who people are chasing. Mm. And that is very unique. Uh, maybe, maybe only Catherine Bigelow uh, is somewhere near that. In terms of female directors?
1: Yeah, I mean she's yeah, she's the only one who when people get when people offer her a thing or they announce that she's working on a project, it kind of makes big news. And uh, like, like her Ava Duvernay when she signs onto a project, it's something that reverberates out and, and things like her forthcoming adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time for Disney, which I believe is the first movie to cost more than a hundred million dollars to be directed by a black woman which is uh, both incredible and shameful. Incredible that it's happened, shameful that it didn't happen a thousand times already. Um, but, uh, you know, she is she is in the upper echelon, I think, of, of directors, both in terms of her talent, but also in her impact. She has used her the improved visibility that was given by Selma and by the shameful snubbing of Selma at the Oscars a few years ago to, you know, give voice to... Uh, kind of um, advocate for things through social media and through interviews and things like that, but also she has used it to, uh, you know, advance in the film industry to you know her name's out there. So she's going to take meetings and you know make things happen, uh, and that's very difficult for 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 women and people of color to do. And the fact that she has been able to kind of kick the door in uh, is incredible and a wonderful thing to see.
0: Mm. And that she could make. She's equally adept at making historical dramas, uh, Disney films, or hard-hitting documentaries. You know, like that shit ain't easy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm hoping that uh, you know she obviously makes many more films to come, and they're all brilliant. And uh, I'm just, I, I am really in awe of Thirteenth. It's a film that I constantly feel like I should rewatch because it's so exhilarating, whilst also being wary of it because it's so depressing. <laughs> Uh, and I haven't watched it since the election, so I don't know how how it will play now. But certainly, watching before the election, it was uh, something that was both exhilarating and uh, heart stopping in terms of uh, making you realise what the stakes are for 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 the world, for America in particular.
0: Mm, absolutely, it's a tough watch incredibly depressing watch but it is a vital watch it's on netflix and you know i kind of fully expect that to be in with the mix with the best documentary oscars or has that already been decided though that kind of shortlist uh i think there
1: is a shortlist been announced but i haven't seen it i would be i assume that it's on it because the outcry if it hadn't been on it would have been thunderous and i've not i've not heard that it's not on it but um yeah if it's If it's not nominated alongside OJ Made in America, assuming they don't try and pull some sort of weird rules thing about it, uh, I'd be very surprised because Mm. both of those are are fantastic movies that are not only great works of filmmaking, but they're also just, like, so vital and relevant uh, and not in kind of a buzzwordy way. You know, it's like you watch these and think, oh, these are movies so much about our world now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's 2016, guys, and that was the 10 best films of 2016, um, according to uh, us two. Um, I mean, who listens to us? Um, but that's what we think. Uh, decent list, that, Ed?
1: Yep, and uh, just to kind of carry out, this is based on films that we've seen, so we're not saying that, like, American Honey isn't worthy of it. We're not saying that um, La La Land isn't worth worthy of consideration. These are movies that we have seen that we have both seen but uh uh but, you know movies that, that, that we have seen that have come out in the UK so if we've left something out it's either because we didn't see it or it's not eligible or because it's terrible so are, <laughs> so if, if it's not on this list it falls into one of those broad categories
0: yeah yeah three three good reasons to exclude a film but yeah uh not a vintage year um i'm sure well it's just in every sense but yeah um i'm sure 2017 will shape up to be stronger than this one i hope so anyway um i did say to you um that the only way that this year could get any worse was that if rogue one turned out to be bobbins um and you know luckily it turned out to be all right so uh yeah we ended the year on a high So, yeah, that is it, the podcast for this year. And also, that is it for me on this podcast. I'm, as everyone knows, taking a break for a bit. Um, So I'll be handing the reins over uh, to Ed uh, and his rotating series of of guests um, or, or, you know, whoever's near him on the street. It could be like a Billy on the street, Ed. You just grab people and give them a dollar and ask them a question about, like, Werner Herzog.
1: Yeah, just run at them saying, like, Casey Affleck, do the accusations really offend you
0: or not? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, you know, he's hosting SNL. It- Wait, did he host SNL this week? Or was it? Yes, he week? did. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. And NBC
1: I think they've demonstrated they're not that picky about potential sex offenders being hosts of their shows.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're going to uh invite Uncle Jack from What's Away Sunny on uh <laughs> to present soon. Um I think with special musical guest Gary Glitter. Um Oof. That would be a great combo. Anyway, enough of this nonsense about like uh, child abusers. Um, That's it. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, why not leave us a little review? You can find us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast and on the the Facebook as well. Drop the vote, it's cleaner. I like the Facebook. I think that's good. Like the YouTubes. Yeah, next week there'll be two different voices talking on this podcast um, and it will be a completely different energy and I'm pretty sure it won't work and we'll have to go back to the network for notes Uh, uh, it'll be like when uh, you know uh, John Ritter left or died uh, eight simple rules to reference a podcast we made about three weeks ago but yeah for the very last time this year it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me